You're listening to Value Judgments. My name is Eric Matheson. I wasn't a frontline healthcare worker during the pandemic. I was more of a second-line one. I was working full-time as a clinical ethicist, but when the pandemic began, I mostly worked from home. I really saw how the pandemic increasingly took a toll on frontline workers. It burned them out, it caused distress, and I heard from one person after another who left healthcare for something else. Over the last year, the staff shortage in healthcare across Canada went from serious to a crisis. Wait times have increased, emergency departments are sometimes closed, so many people can't find a family doctor. And I've increasingly wondered, why? Why aren't there more doctors? Where are the biggest barriers, and what can we do to address the problem? Of course, the problem isn't just with physicians. There are staff shortages in nursing and other areas too, but today I just want to focus on doctors. Today's guest is Rosalie Wanch, a senior policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute, She's the author of a report called Help Wanted, How to Address Labor Shortages in Healthcare and Improve Patient Access. We talked about some of the surprising reasons why there's a labor shortage right now, including that doctors might be being paid too much in some cases. We also talk about why there aren't more doctors. Here's the conversation. So to begin, what do you think are the most acute problems in Canadian healthcare right now? Uh, well, it's, I think part of the interesting thing going on at the moment is that it's hard to find the areas that you could say aren't in the news regularly, um, whether it's sort of thinking back to the pandemic and issues with seniors care, where uh, the vast majority of COVID mortality occurred in congregate living centers, particularly for seniors. So that's a remaining issue. Um, We've, we've got news about ER shutting down across the country and really part of the issue that connects both of those things that I think is sort of the underlying challenge is a shortage of healthcare providers. Um, and that, that I think is probably the largest challenge that, that affects the entire healthcare sector. Do you think that there was one um, decision or some kind of particular thing that got us to this place where we have this shortage? Or was this just kind of a combination of a bunch of stuff? Really, if it was just one thing, it would be much easier to fix and it wouldn't be affecting the sector across the sector and also across different professions. Um, and so unfortunately, uh, as much as I would love to say it's one thing and that's what we should fix, it's it seems much more likely that it's a combination of a lot of little factors. Um, one is just commonly burnout. The pandemic was highly stressful. Uh, there was a lot of disruptions to care, as well as healthcare just being quite a challenging environment. It involves dealing with life and death, emotions, and you see people on their worst day. So sometimes you're not dealing with um, the friendliest of people, and it's not entirely not their fault. So it's it's a stressful position, and when you add in other factors like the administrative load of just sort of additional work that isn't compensated, uh, as well as choices around how you're going to run your own practice, we end up with this interaction in each province of different policies affecting the work decisions of physicians and other healthcare providers, as well as public policy affecting how many doctors are available to provide care. And so really, to me, as a policy analyst, I really look at the interaction between the way health policy affects their decisions, and then what that means for our care. And 
what I would say is that there's a combination of issues. Partly we can talk about pay rates, how we compensate doctors, but that's getting pretty into the weeds. Um, we can also talk about supply. The provinces do have some control over how many doctors are available since they fund residency slots. And so if we have a shortage of healthcare providers, one thing we can do is increase supply. However, that takes a minimum of you know four to six years to really have an impact. And so when we're in an acute sort of crisis from which we've been in since the pandemic, possibly slightly before and, and remain in this HHR shortage, um, we, we really need to address, shall we say, the quality of life issues um, for the people working in the healthcare sector and, and improve retention and see if we can get them to work a few more hours, which I mean, once the, when they've done overtime for a few years, it's hard to keep asking that, but ideally that is the solution that we need is to get more hours out of existing doctors and nurses, as well as making sure that those who have gone through the training actually stay in the profession. Yeah. Was the pandemic, I mean, it was extremely hard on healthcare providers in lots of different ways. Um, do you think that that was a, uh, a tipping point uh, for something that was already kind of a, a structural issue? Or did it, you know, were things kind of, you know, more or less kind of fine or doing okay before that? And that the pandemic really, you know, was, you know, was this thing that we couldn't have really seen and couldn't have really prepared for? Like how much of that was the pandemic exacerbating a problem that was already there versus um, causing a new problem? Uh, to me, it's a bit it's definitely both. We were, I would say, below ideal staffing levels before the pandemic. And then when you combine a big increase in the need for healthcare because so many people were sick on top of sort of the regular amounts of care that we needed to give, that somewhat short staff became very short staff. And that kind of started the negative feedback loop of the people that were working were working too much, burning out, really had a lot on their shoulders. And then sort of, at least for those that work in hospitals. And then on the other side, about one in five Canadians at this point don't have a family doctor. And about 6.6 .6 million Canadians have a doctor that's over the age of 65, meaning that they're likely close to retirement. And during the pandemic, when, uh, there was closure of non-essential medical services. A lot of older family physicians might have chosen at that point to simply reduce their practice hours or start transitioning towards retirement. And the pandemic might have made that um, happen more as a group as opposed to them naturally reducing their practice of their own accord. So I think there's likely multiple factors at play partly the shortage that going into the pandemic and then the increasing burnout on, on those that are currently working, as well as potentially just speeding up natural retirements, which are certainly a factor in our current shortages, is simply just the age of physicians in this country. In the report, you discuss how... Um relative to other OECD countries that uh, Canada actually has an above average number of general practitioners um, and fewer specialists. Um, and yet I think the perception, and as you were just discussing, like I think most people see the biggest issue as a, a, a shortage of family doctors right now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, 
is there one area that that is more pressing or is it across the board in these different ways? I think that it's different between family physicians and specialties. Um, Partly in the report, we see that specialists are much less likely to actually be working full time, um, which indicates that if there is a shortage of specialty care, which there there could arguably be given the wait lists that we have for certain services, that there's potential to really address that crisis by figuring out ways to get specialists to be more efficient, be able to actually direct more of their time towards care hours and maybe less time on administrative tasks or simply just trying to incentivize them to work more. Um, and counterintuitively, I might suggest that that could be actually a reducing their pay, which we can get into a little bit uh, further in if you, if you wanna get into the technical economics. Um, but I think for specialists, it's, in some areas, in some specialties, we likely have shortages. And then in other areas, we might have an oversupply of specialists. And that is a complex web of individual medical students deciding what specialties they want to apply to, um, whether or not those residency slots are available. And it's quite complex, but a lot of it comes down to which specialties are likely to make the most money and which ones have, shall we say, the most prestige attached to them. Um, for example, there are very few gerontologists in this country. It's not necessarily the coolest or most uh, well-remunerated uh, way to practice. But however, we do have a growing senior population and an increasing need for those specialists. And so that would be an example where in a particular area, we could definitely adjust um, how they're paid or increase their remuneration in other ways to try and incentivize more medical students to actually take up those professions. And I would say similarly for um, family doctors, th there's been, I would say, there's, there's shifts that are happening and have happened in other countries and are beginning to occur in Canada as well simply the number of family physicians doesn't necessarily translate to access to primary care or sort of that what we we in Canada traditionally think of as the care given by family doctors. In many other countries and in the OECD, they actually consider a much broader set of professionals to be primary care providers. They may not be able to do everything that a family physician can do, but they can do a lot. And, or they might be supervised so they can supervise by a physician so that one physician can actually cover a lot more patients because they have nurse practitioners or other professionals assisting them. And so that's one thing that is, I think, improving primary care access in Canada these days. Uh, for example, Nova Scotia and Quebec are increasing the scopes for nurse practitioners to start providing primary care. So I think it's not strictly the number of doctors. It's also who can provide the care? What do people need? And ensuring that we have access in our communities. Um, I think a feature of Canada and why we might need more doctors than the OECD average is simply ge geographical. We're a huge country and you want your doctor to be close to your home. And so it might be reasonable in my view that we should actually have an above average number of family physicians or other primary care providers 
to ensure that we actually do have access, particularly in rural or remote communities. Um, access to primary care is less of a concern, say, in downtown Toronto, where there might be more alternatives like family health clinics through hospitals or walk-in clinics and other sort of substitutes for ongoing primary care. Ideally, you want a family doctor that has your medical file, you can develop that relationship and trust, but there are other means of at least filling the gap in the meantime. Yeah, do you think that there's too much focus on the physician shortage right now instead of finding alternative ways of filling those gaps, expanding uh, expanding the role of, uh, of other professionals? I do, and I think it's complex as to how we got there, but if we were to, say, pay more attention to home and community care and primary care, then we could likely prevent a lot of the people that go to emergency rooms for things that they that could be treated elsewhere. Um, and that that would really free up a lot of resources and hospital capacity that could really just make the entire care pathway for everyone a little bit more efficient. Because people don't have reliable access to primary care, um, they've gotten in the habit of going to the ER for lots of things. And because we go to the ER, which is probably the most expensive place to actually be receiving that care, the hospitals become overburdened. And therefore, you know, the government needs to address that acute crisis, keep the emergency room open, and we end up in investing more in hospitals, which kind of continues that negative feedback loop where if we were to perhaps take a step back and really invest in that preventative and community care, we could then prevent many people from going to the emergency room. Um, and just having looked at it, about 20% of people in Canada say they don't have a family physician or nurse practitioner for primary care. And then um, an additional 47.2% said that they can't get a same or next day appointment, which leaves us with 67% of Canadians can't get access to primary care in a day or two should they need care. Um, and that really, if you're worried, you're not sure what's wrong with you, the, the advice would be to go to the ER if you don't have anything else. And so that's really the situation that we're in is the majority of Canadians, if they need care today, would likely go to an ER to get it. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so let's talk about uh, incentives and compensation. Uh, that, uh, uh, let me just read, uh, apart from, from this report, it said that increasing physicians' incomes is associated with fewer services per capita, while a higher number of physicians per capita is associated with more services. Um, so walk me through what is going on, uh, or you know, what is the finding, and, and what does this mean about how we should address compensation or, or think about changing compensation and incentives? Normally, you would think, just the standard worker, standard employment job, that if you were paid more, you might want to work more hours because you're compensated more for that time. However, there's also this competing effect where now you have more money for the hours you've already worked. So maybe you might choose instead to reduce the hours you work, keep your income more or less the same, and spend more time on leisure. That, that's just sort of a generally uh, intuitive relationship that we sort of teach at the Econ 101 level. 
Um, and what my analysis of physician payment in Canada kind of showed is a bit of a counterintuitive relationship where that idea to dial back on work and instead spend time on other activities might actually be the bigger effect. So counterintuitively, for at least some specialties, it might make more sense to actually reduce the compensation that they're getting um, because that would actually incentivize less spent less of their time being spent on leisure activities or other labor-based activities and incentivize more patient care. Um, simply, when we don't see more services per capita, when we pay more, that kind of suggests that paying more will not fix our problem. And so we need to look at something else. Um, and part of it is can be how we compensate doctors, and there are different structures across the country. But one thing I want to bring up is also changing changing preferences uh, throughout the profession and maybe a bit of a difference in, in demographics. Traditionally, uh, physicians are independent business people. They, are, they bill the provincial insurance for their services, but they are, technically speaking, private for-profit businesses. And out of those revenues, they have to pay for their office overhead, they might have to pay for their administrative staff, and all of those things. And that's really the traditional model of healthcare. We're seeing with younger physicians, they are more likely to have a preference for something that's more of an employment-based relationship, where you know they get access to things that employees do, like scheduled paid vacation time, um, regular hours of work, that they don't have to also be business people that run the operations of an office. And so there's also ways that we could potentially incentivize physicians to change their work habits by changing the structure of how we employ them. Even if what they got paid ended up being more or less the same, if it's preferable and more structural, uh, more it's better for their lives and also potentially better for managers to be able to set hours monitor how many patients are seen per hour, that kind of employee employment relationship could really change things. And it seems like something that younger doctors are more in favor of and more open to than the older doctors, particularly if we go a couple decades back. Um, one of the, one of, it was really a fundamental part of original Medicare in Saskatchewan that it only actually was able to be brought forward, partly because the doctors were able to remain independent as for-profit businesses and self-incorporate. Um, so it's really a, a bug. It wasn't a design feature, it was a negotiation point. And we've more or less been working with that ever since, but it does create this weird structure where a hospital owns the surgery rooms, but it doesn't tell the doctors when they can work, but it does have the responsibility of ensuring that if the doctors do want to work, there is OR staff available, there are the resources and other infrastructure necessary is there. And so we have this sort of disjointed relationship between who is responsible for the supplies that are necessary to provide medical care, and then the people that provide that care. And bringing those closer together could be a way to 
improve efficiency while also not negatively impacting physicians. It just simply changes the types of remuneration they're getting. They might not get, they'd get wages and they'd get less control, but they'd also get benefits, vacations, and sort of all of the things that we've come to associate with standard employment. So is the level of pay, like, is that a surprising finding for you as an economist, um, like different from what you'd see in other areas? Like, is there something about, uh, about physicians or about um, you know the, the choices that they're making that is unusual or is this just an indication of you know that uh, you know as incomes rise that people do just have these trade-offs and this is what we would see in other areas as well uh, it's it's common I mean it was taught to me in university as a thing that exists at sort of high income levels it's something that you really um, you don't expect the sort of leisure and labor decision to um, tend towards leisure until you reach certain income levels, really where all of the comforts of life are mostly met. And it's colloquially, I've started to think about it as people can, you know, time is money. So if you're spending your time making money, then there's a point where you have enough money where you start spending money to give you time. And that's really where we start to see that labor curve bend backwards. Uh, sorry, the labor supply curve then backwards. Um, and to say whether it was surprising or not, uh, I would say maybe exciting or interesting because a lot of the times you won't reach that income level across a sector or when you're looking at sort of the national level for, for a particular profession, it's unlikely that they're paid so much that we've reached that point. Um, however, we do start to see that, particularly with uh, specialists, that the supply and how much they're paid is it, it's suggestive of that, that if you were to reduce pay, you might get more hours of patient care. Uh, and so to me, as an economist, uh, that sounds like a win-win for the system. Not so much a win for the specialists, but, you know, the government won't have to pay quite so much and Canadians would get more care. To me, that is a win-win that I don't get very often. Normally, there's much clearer winners and losers. And I would even add that if we were to address some of the quality issues that physicians have with the way that their work is structured, that we might actually be able to make it a triple win. So that's exciting to me because economics is the dismal science. And through the pandemic, there was not a lot of good news. And so I'd say I was actually quite excited about that result because it's something we can actually do. Um, it's complicated because of the way that physician remuneration is decided, um, but it sounds doable. And that's, it's rare that there's something that's just actually beneficial to both the government, it, to all three, essentially. It's, it's very rare that we'd find something that's could, be, could benefit care for Canadians, might save the government some money, and even might benefit the physicians, just, you know, not strictly through their wages. They just get it in other benefits. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the, uh, the pathway for becoming a physician and um, kind of the, the way that Canada has structured that. Um, but first, do, when we think about the problem right now, it, is it more of a recruitment problem or more of a retention problem is the problem that we're not we're not 
making enough new doctors or you know that they're they're retiring they're leaving to do other stuff um other things like that uh i would say it's both simply because the amount of residency positions and doctor trainees that we have isn't matched up to population growth so in the long term sense we we are not matching the number of physicians to population so we will have fewer doctors per capita over time so that is something to address but i would also say it's a retention issue maybe not so much for physicians directly but for a lot of say other healthcare professions like nursing um personal support workers in particular i think the average tenure is about 2 years um and so you know if you spend a year training and only work in the profession for 2 years there's only so much we could ever fill that gap by training more people uh if they burn out faster and faster we're just on a treadmill that keeps speeding up and we'll never quite catch up and so i think in some areas it is very much a retention issue over a training issue uh for physicians i'd say it's potentially more evenly distributed uh where but i would say that provinces have been addressing the training pipeline to a certain extent as well as making um getting licensed for say foreign physicians or those that had an international medical education the provinces have taken various steps to improve that improve the ability of immigrants to actually have their credentials recognized and begin to practice more quickly which will help with bringing on supply to match sort of our increasing population growth at the moment yeah is the um so so i i know that that's been a bottleneck for a long time is just you know if if somebody has trained elsewhere and they want to come to uh work in canada even a canadian who did med school elsewhere and want, wants to get a residency here that that that's a bottleneck um it is uh is the, the residency process what you see to be the uh kind of a, a key bottleneck or or is it just kind of you know these things take a long time it takes a long time to train a physician and you know the whole process is just uh you know it it's hard to kind of adjust the the number of spots uh yeah i'd say it's it's partly entry to medical school itself um that we we keep entrance to medical school incredibly incredibly limited in a way that say back in the 90s law schools changed how how law used to be similar where it was sort of there was a limited number each year but every person that graduates would probably get an articling position or a residency so if you got the degree you were almost guaranteed entry into the profession um and so it can be both how many people are we letting into medical school and is there potential maybe to broaden that how we we obviously want the highest quality of graduates but once the bar has reached you know you need at least a 95% average across everything we can question whether or not that's reasonable i would also point out that no one can get into medical school if you do if you studied say a subjective subject because well uh you yourself how often does someone get 100% on a philosophy paper like i'm going to guess zero i don't actually know but it's probably very unlikely whereas on a math exam you can get 100 and so there there's also this we're essentially saying that those that study the humanities um are, can't be doctors you have to take science 
And in some cases, especially at the family physician or community health level, is that strictly necessary? Uh, maybe being able to have some anthropology experience or some psychology experience to actually understand your patients could be just as valuable as knowing organic chemistry. Um, and so this is, this is one thing where I think maybe our bar for getting into medical school is a little bit high and we could increase entrance. But then if we do that, we also need to increase residency slots because I think that that practical training is a critical part to being a doctor. And if we want more family physicians, we can fund more family physician residencies. Uh, that is something that is directly within the government's control and at present is based on relatively limited analysis for what we call health human resource planning. Um, and it's not done in say a comprehensive way that brings in a lot of factors about what the future will bring. Um, and so there's, there's, way, there's ways we could improve that process. And so I'd say really it's both, it's entry to medical school, but then also which residencies do we fund and how many will be very important. Um, I would add that the being able to recognize foreign credentials is a huge step in the right direction that, you know, physicians that have many years of experience in other countries and are able to pass our licensing exams, then, you know, can, can enter practice faster and that benefits them and Canadians. And I think generally at, that is a great policy that I'm happy to see the provinces finally move forward on. Are the um, the residency spots, is that just a government funding issue? Are there other things that uh, the schools themselves or, um, you know, other aspects of healthcare that they, uh, that, you know, the other ways to improve the, or increase the number of residency spots? Um, well, they're mostly directly government subsidized. Uh, so I think it is really on government to to at least signal that they would like to fund those positions. There can be some other factors, like are there enough supervising teaching physicians at a particular school to have this many residents? Does the, the hospital provide certain services? So how many residents in this area do they need? There are other, other sort of questions like that, but to me, those are secondary to the province really determining the overall number of slots. Um, there is also, I'd say within medical schools, a certain amount of leeway to determine whether we're gonna, they're going to direct those towards specialty placements and maybe the division between the different medical professions. So that's something where it's a bit unclear whether that's sort of a direct government gets to choose and how much license the medical schools themselves have to direct those residencies to where they feel they have the most teaching capabilities or the most care need in their teaching hospital. Um, so I would say if there's an issue there, it's still on government to then address that issue. Um, so I have a couple of big picture questions. Um, Yimbies are, you know, in the news all the time. It's getting a lot more attention that, you know, especially in Canada where uh, there is such a housing shortage. And I think there's, you know, attention around just uh, for housing, we just need more housing supply. Um, is there a similar thing in healthcare? What is the YIMBY equivalent of healthcare? You know, the thing that we could kind of focus on or rally around to try to address uh, that, you know, that will give the most bang for our buck to um, improve the system right now? <laughs> oh, that is a hard question. 
um, I would say that there are very few maybe actions that would receive um, just resounding support across the healthcare sector and amongst the Canadian public. Um, and partly I would say that there's a bit of a disconnect between what people think would help and what might actually help. Um, because healthcare is incredibly, incredibly complicated. There's lots of legal, political, historical, heck, even the constitution is a bit of a barrier to improving healthcare services across the country because it's constitutionally a provincial responsibility. And so instead of having one healthcare system, we have 13 healthcare systems that themselves are all different combinations of things. I think that we should really expand scopes of practice. I think that the idea of getting pharmacists to be able to handle minor ailments and prescribe for minor infections, having nurse practitioners be able to provide primary care, really just expanding the number of people that can provide care is probably the best solution. And Canadians love it. It's much easier to get your flu vaccine by going to a pharmacist than it is to make a, an appointment with your family doctor. And that's something that was popular with Canadians, but not popular with physicians when it was first implemented. And so if I had one thing, it's expand scopes of practice to the limit of their professional competence. We want every single medical professional to be practicing sort of at their highest level, like where they're, it's the things that they could handle that someone underneath them really shouldn't. That would be ideal. And that would solve a lot of our, our I would say, missing, missing primary, missing middle preventative community care. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the thing. You know, Yimbyism is, uh, you know, politically difficult as well. Um, but I think the thing that seems intractable, intractable about Canadian healthcare right now is that it just seems that there are so many different things, and it's hard to kind of, you know, pinpoint what you know any one specific thing that we could get. You know, let's focus on this to uh, politically right now and try to make some progress on that. You know, an, an indicator um, that seems to be part of what's difficult about it. Well, and I would maybe add that there was a brief period during the pandemic where we all got to work. You know, we people lost access to their family health teams. We didn't want people going to the hospital if they could avoid it. Almost overnight, we got 70% of ambulatory visits in the province of Ontario to be virtual. Following the pandemic, we roll that back. And so... Yes, that was done quickly, and we could. I certainly would say we, we needed to make some tweaks to that system. That was something that was sitting on the shelf, people have been asking for for years and years and years. And it turns out when there's an emergency and we need something, we can act. But when sort of we return to normal times, you kind of see this everybody re entrenching that their major issue is the most important issue instead of. We all agree this is the biggest thing today, so let's solve that thing as a team. Um, and so there, there was a brief period during the pandemic where a lot got done very quickly, very cooperatively. And as much as possible, I'd like to maintain that momentum, but it, it does seem that we're kind of going back to a bit of the tyranny of the urgent, which is whatever the biggest issue is today, that's the one that we're going to talk about. 
but then there's another issue tomorrow and we move on to that and we don't actually address those underlying issues. And so I, you know, if we could keep some of that pandemic momentum where we, we being the healthcare sector, the analysts, the policy wonks, like just all the people trying to handle the emergencies as they were coming, that that cooperation was a bit magical and we got a lot of work done. I just wish we could keep it. You mentioned uh, that there are things that people think will work that that don't actually work. What are the main examples of you know things that people focus on that you think are the wrong things? Uh, one would be a let's give more money to hospitals. You know, the emergency room is shutting down. We need to give more money to the hospital. That will fix the issue this month, maybe next month, but it won't change that we have an increasing number of people that don't have access to primary care that makes them more likely to go to the emergency room. You know, it, it actually feeds into the negative feedback loop where the more we have a limited amount of money that we can spend on healthcare. And if we spend more of it on hospitals, that means less for prevention, means less for family doctors. And, and so I think that would be one, one example of where there's sort of the obvious solution might not be the right one. And I would also maybe mention that there's, there's a bit of a fear of any drastic change. So there's sort of an everything must, everything's broken, but nothing must change. Where say, if the government moves to increase surgical capacity by contracting with private clinics, there is a bit of an uproar about public-private healthcare, potentially two-tier healthcare. And from within the system, that's a little bit confusing um, for policy wonks and, and those that are in the know on this sort of thing because, well, family doctors are private for-profit businesses. Um, also, these clinics can specialize, meaning they can get better outcomes, they can be faster, and it more or less costs the same amount of money. That's, that's a critical thing, is ensuring that it doesn't increase costs. But we can do it more efficiently, and that can free up capacity at hospitals for more complex surgeries that aren't routine. Um, and so that would be one where it's not necessarily a popular policy uh, amongst the public, or maybe it's misunderstood. But from inside the system, it looks like a more efficient way to deliver care that preserves hospital capacity and also preserves our access to these non-urgent surgeries during an emergency situation, a private clinic can continue to operate without having that sort of interaction with the potential for infectious disease when, when we've got COVID wards in hospitals. If you have them in separate buildings, the risk is lower. Um, and so I think there's a lot of benefits to actually using private surgical clinics, but they aren't really popular. And I think there's a large fear of anything that might be called private in Canada and compared to European countries, it, it's it's a bit of a a bit of a moral principle that's that's shows that we don't fully understand the complexity of the system and that there are already a lot of public and private interplay through throughout the healthcare system. Lots of things we think of as healthcare are almost entirely private or partly public and private. And I think we need to kind of have a more mature conversation about what we mean by public, what we mean by private. And at the end of the day, if it's 
billed through public insurance, it's publicly funded healthcare, and if the patient isn't paying out of pocket, then do we care what type of corporation the physician happens to be incorporated as? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, having worked in healthcare in the US as well, that Canadians tend to think when they think of privatization, they think of the US and not of many European countries. And, you know, I think that that kind of uh, uh, paints a certain kind of picture. Um, okay, the other uh, big picture question I have is that um, uh, I think Canadians and uh and I will speak for philosophers generally, um, that you know, we often think of lines or cues as being this great thing, that they're egalitarian, um, that they're a good way of distributing things, they're a good way of um, kind of pricing stuff, you know, first come, first serve, or using triage. Economists, every economist I talk to, they you know, almost invariably hate cues, <laughs> you know, that their uh, cues are not a good way of distributing stuff because it's, uh, you know, that that time just gets wasted. It's uh, inefficient. It's not sensitive. Um, so uh, it, it, when I look at Canadian healthcare, it's just cues. Um, so as an economist, um, it, do you think that a more, you know, if you had a magic wand, a more radical kind of ability to transform things, um, is there a way to, is there a better way to address things or uh, are cues, you know, you know, the kind of best of all the options? Oh, I might, I might be uh, showing how into the weeds I've gotten and how far away from the traditional economists and into the healthcare sort of multidisciplinary space I've gotten by saying this, but I'm actually in favor of a cue. Our current problem is we don't have one though which makes it non-egalitarian. We have very non-transparent lines all over the place. And you might not even know what line you're in or how long the next line is. So I'll just, just because we're talking about cues, we could think of this like a grocery aisle. What if there was blackout curtains between each aisle and you didn't get to pick which one you were put in. You were just put in one and told to wait in this line. But you hear sort of through the curtain that someone else over there only waited for a week and their problem might not be quite as bad as yours. That's unfair. And that's currently how the system works because if you say need specialist care, you get referred by a family physician. Family physicians have, well, depending on the province, they might know what the wait lists, the average wait times are for particular physicians or particular hospitals. And in some provinces they don't. Ontario would be one of those where we don't know. Uh, so a, physician, a family physician refers you to a specialist, no idea what their caseload is, no idea if there's another doctor down the road that has a much shorter wait list. So that's, that's sort of problem number one. And then when we get to sort of the specialist level, then we get to, you know, how busy is the OR room that they work out of? Can they only get a day once a week, once a month? you know, what is their ability to actually provide services quickly? Um, you know, there's sort of just these, all these different lines. There's different lines for the operating room. There's different lines for each specialist. You might not know how often they work or when you can expect a phone call. So there's this sort of real inefficiency where people are lost in lines. If you got referred and that referral didn't go through, you might never receive a call. So you actually aren't in line, but you thought you were. And so a lot of this, I would say, can be fixed with a, creating a single queue and a single triage system. That can be egalitarian because we don't actually have the ability to provide care to everyone 
in an ideal time frame. We simply don't have that capacity. And functionally speaking, the demand for healthcare is essentially limitless. We would always want to be healthier as a population. And if those services become available, we will want them. And so there's sort of this limitless demand situation as well. Um, so yeah, I guess that's to say it's, it's a bit of a convoluted mess of lines. And that to me is incredibly inefficient and not egalitarian. If we say for all hip and knee replacement surgeries were to have a single weight line, those that are in the worst condition would then be matched sort of with the closest available physician that's the soonest, the closest and soonest available. Whereas those that are maybe much more minor would expect to wait a longer period of time to have their issue addressed, but they, they at least see where they are in line and sort of ha can form expectations based on that. And so while a line might not be ideal, I think that a single line is certainly better than an unknown number of lines of unknown length spread out across facilities and physicians across provinces. And so it's certainly something to address. Um, and I would say prioritizing those that are the sort of most acute need. Um, so an example from Ontario would be cancer care diagnostic imaging, something that if you need it, you clearly need it urgently, but there are very limited amounts of those machines and the techs available to run those tests. And so by waiting in a single line, we actually can, can say that that's the best we can do for efficiency, given the tech that we have at the moment, given the capacity we have, and given the needs of all the other people in the line. So I do think one line is good. I would really prefer just if we didn't need that line and instead you got referred and got follow-up 24 to 48 hours later, and so nobody waited in line. That's the ideal situation. Um, given that that's not entirely possible, one line is better than many. Rosalie, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's always an interesting chat. That's Rosalie Wanch. She's a senior policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute. Value Judgments is produced by me, Eric Matheson. If you like the show, please rate it on your podcast app. And if you really like the show, you can become a paid subscriber at valuejudgments.substack.com.